0: What are your insecurities, would you like to tell us all this morning? Everybody has a number of them. They might be tied to your marriage, they might be tied to your job, maybe your friendships, maybe your grades in school, your image in the neighborhood, acceptance by your in-laws, extended family, maybe acceptance just by people within your own immediate family, What you look like, what you have that makes you think that you're important or special, maybe your abilities in sports, academics, business, any arena of life. Where are your insecurities? These insecurities are always tied to what we're afraid of losing. Usually, our insecurities are tied to... Losing some kind of image that we think is important to us or necessary to us. Fear, the fear of losing image, fear of any kind, is really only overcome when you find qualities in something or someone that provide you complete security. That's the only time in which you're going to actually overcome Fear or insecurity is when you find some qualities in something or someone that provide you complete security. But these insecurities, as significant and life-dominating as they may be, are different than what we might look at as spiritual insecurities. What are your insecurities spiritually? And I mean by that, Do you fear losing God? Do you fear losing a relationship with God? Now, there are several expressions of Christianity that teach that a person cannot really know whether they have genuine security in Jesus Christ, and typically that view comes from some type of you tied to how you view the will of humanity, the freedom of the will. The freedom of the will of, of a human being can choose to be in God or then so free that it can choose to leave God, and therefore there's no real security that a person can have. And that approach to Christianity, it can breed a conscience filled with insecurity, can't it? If you've ever come from a background like that or you have encountered people who struggle with that kind of theology, you will likely engage with people who feel very insecure. What if you don't love God enough, especially in light of God's holiness? (laughs) I mean, the reality is, how can you love God enough? What if you have a season of life where you struggle with faithfulness and belief and purity and devotion? What if you walk away too many times? Is there a line drawn in the sand that if you go too far, there's no more patience with God? What if the pressure around you becomes too difficult and you don't openly acknowledge Jesus and your allegiance to him and you're too afraid of the consequences? Are you still secure? What happens if you can't come up with enough Logical reasoning to defend all of the attacks against Christianity, and you begin to question, is there still security in Christianity for you? Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia is all about security. This letter speaks about Jesus, who possesses a key to let people in and keep people out. The letter describes Jesus as one who opens doors that no one can shut and shuts doors that no one can can open again. This letter describes enemies who oppose Christians, and those enemies are going to be made to turn into worshipers who acknowledge what they passionately wanted to deny at one point. This letter talks about keeping and being kept, in security. The letter speaks about the eternal rewards that can be relied upon now because of our security in the one who holds the key. In other words, the letter to the church in Philadelphia is all about our spiritual security and how Jesus is the key to open the door of security in him. So that's why we could call this church, Philadelphia is the church of the open door, not the door of potential opportunity but the door of actual that's actually opened that brings in security it's a door Jesus opened and as the text says no one is able to close it a door that Jesus alone possesses the key a door to the true and eternal building of God that houses all those who would hold fast to Jesus because Jesus is holding fast to you The question will be, are you a member of the Church of the Open Door? And if you are, this letter says you are secure. You're secure. Jesus is the key that unlocks that security. And if we're eternally secure, secure, what are you fearing? If you're secure what would you ever have insecurity about? What are your insecurities? Tie them to what you fear losing. What are you afraid of losing when it comes to God? If you're secure in him, you shouldn't have any of those insecurities. They should begin to dissipate, and they will when you think of, him, think of those insecurities in light of Christ. Christ. So, we're looking at the sixth of the seven different churches that are highlighted in chapters two and three in Revelation. Actual, legitimate churches facing the kinds of challenges that any church in any era of the church's existence will ever face. Their specifics are our own challenges to be mindful of. And if you've ever been on a tour of the places where these seven churches used to exist, it can be a long trip. We began our tour studying through these letters back in chapter 2, verse 1, not too long ago, but we started out in Ephesus, which is on the kind of the mid part of the western portion of modern-day Turkey, Ephesus, right in the middle on the Aegean Sea, and we started to go north from there, just a few miles into Smyrna, and then turning inland a bit more, we... Went up to the north to Pergamum, and from Pergamum we started down south again, but further inland south to the city of Thyatira, then directly south into Sardis, and today we're almost finished. Kinda, sorta. As we walk through this, do you ever find yourself getting a little bit tired of walking through this journey? It can be exhausting. Our family was on a trip five years ago touring these sites, and exhaustion seemed to be on their mind. And so here's one of my favorite photos from our trip. We're in ancient Philadelphia. (laughs) Here we are sitting on a first-century pillar (laughs) And I'm starting to read this letter right here, and you can see we're a little tired of the trip. (laughs) I think it's my favorite picture. We talk about it all the time. My oldest said, if you show that picture, they're going to think this is the church of the living dead, not the church (laughs) of the open door. (laughs) When you go to Philadelphia today, there's just a little postage stamp Plot of ground where you can see bits and pieces of the first century buildings and a few columns. They're large columns, but a few columns of the Byzantine-era cathedral that was devoted to John the Apostle. It's just a city block surrounded by a bustling city around it. That's Philadelphia today. That's all you're going to see of the ancient church, just a few smattering rocks. Leftover pillars that have just been thrown around right there in that place. That's it. And when the angel was dispatched to deliver this letter to Philadelphia, it was a city that had been rocked by multiple earthquakes in its history. About 80 years before this letter arrived to the ancient church in Philadelphia, this city was decimated by an earthquake and unrelenting aftershocks that came after it. This city of Philadelphia was a city that never really felt secure. Philadelphia was in a fertile area. It was known for its vineyards and its wine production, but even that wasn't secure because when there was an economic downturn, the Caesar of the day stopped the wine production because it was too expensive. They needed the the ground for grain so they could make wheat and feed people. The city never had any real security. Compared to the other cities that we've looked at and the cities that surrounded it, its history was relatively short. It was founded about 200 years before the birth of Christ. It gained its name, Philadelphia, that is the city of brotherly love. Philadelphos is the Greek term for love. It gained this name when the king of Lydia Eumenes II named it for his older brother Attalus in honor of Attalus' loyalty. You're not going to find much there today. Not going to find much in this ancient city. But when it was thriving, some likened it to the city of Athens and called it Little Athens. It had so many temples and shrines and gods who were honored. But after that earthquake in 17 AD, The city was leveled and it never really regained any significance. It's just a small insignificant city. You're never going to read anything about this city anywhere else in the Bible except right here. It was a city that became known for its insecurity. But the little church in this insignificant city was faithful. In fact, it... Along with one other church, only two churches are the only faithful churches described in all seven letters. Now, yes, there were bits and pieces of faithfulness in some of the other churches, but there's no mark of condemnation from Jesus to this church, only commendation. So what we learn about this little church in Philadelphia is that Jesus is the complete security for his church. And you have to then ask yourself the question, what is it about Jesus? Because Jesus is the one speaking and he keeps telling this church, I'm your security. So what is it about Jesus that makes him the complete security of the church? What are the qualities that when you look at Christ, you begin to find security? That's what we're going to look at. Qualities that make Jesus the complete security for the church, that keeps us stable in the faith. Do you have spiritual insecurities? Do you worry about losing God? This should help you. These are qualities about Christ that should keep you stable, that show you he and he alone is your security. Let's look at the first one this morning. Very simply, Jesus is the source of our security. We can't say enough about this. Again, as is the case with every one of the letters, Jesus begins with a description about himself and particular aspects of his nature that are critical for the church to look at and contemplate that are appropriate to the need that this church has. And if you want to understand security, this is the real reality. If you want to have security, spiritual security in yourself, the first thing you're going to have to do is get your eyes off of yourself. You're going to have to get your eyes off of your surrounding circumstances. You're going to have to get your eyes off of contemplating all the things that make you feel insecure and put them on the one person who is alone secure. And that is Jesus. If you keep looking inside yourself, if you keep looking at your circumstances and your responses or your your ability to keep yourself firm and secure, you're never going to feel secure, ever. The flip side of that's true also. Assurance increases the more you spend time thinking about your life in relationship to who Christ is. Listen, We'll say this again, we'll say it often, we'll say it any as much as we can when you're in this church. Security is a fact. Assurance is how you respond to that fact. It's a sense that you have, the feeling that you have when you are trusting what is secure. Jesus is the source of security. If you're going to look to something else, if you're going to fill your mind with something else, I promise you you're not going to feel very secure. I mean, we could trot out all of, the, all of the studies being done today that show that the current generation of young people are less secure today than a previous generation, and they can tie that to social media. We're like, oh, those poor children. I just want to say, I bet if we did the studies, we would find that adults are more insecure today than previous generations because they are infatuated with what they're reading online. If we'll get our minds on what the scripture says about our Savior, more than we have our heads around what we think is going on in the world, we'll be less insecure. You say, well, when do we get to this part about Jesus? Right now, all right, I'm getting there. Who is Jesus? Who is he revealed here? How is he revealed here? Well, let's notice first, here's what makes Jesus our security, the source of security. First, he's God. That should make you secure. He is God. Where do we get that? The very first phrase. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy. This is a statement of his divinity. It's a statement of his divinity. This is the first time that the word holy is used in the book of Revelation. And it's a word that can't be defined by anything that is common or normal or earthly. It's what is above what's common or earthly or normal. Holy is what it means to be God. He is distinct. He is different. He's uncommon. He's heavenly, not earthly. Holy talks about the exaltedness of God that makes him morally superior and unique to anything and anyone else. It's the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 that surrounded the throne of God and they said it three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures do not cease to say in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Revelation six ten: God the Lord is holy and true. At least 40 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Holy One. 27 times alone in the book of Isaiah, God is referred to as the Holy One. It is his title. It's what describes him as God in comparison to all others. He is the Holy One. Back in... Revelation 3 and verse 9 you'll see that there is a significant group of Jewish opposition in the city of Philadelphia opposing these Christians there. When Jesus announces himself to be the holy one, it is so full of Old Testament definition that immediately he's saying in in, in light of all the opposition by these Jewish people who don't think Jesus is God, here's a statement right off the bat. I'm God. I am God. I am the holy one of the Old Covenant. I am the Holy One of the New Covenant. I am God. Holy is what describes his character and his na- nature. The demons in the Gospels recognized it. In Mark one twenty four, they referred to Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. In Luke 1.35, when Jesus was born, he was referred to as the Holy Child. When some who had been following Jesus decided to leave him, And Jesus turned to the 12 and he says, you don't want to go away too, do you? Do you remember what it says in John 6 of how Peter answered? In verse 66 it says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now I think when you talk about Jesus being holy, that is not the immediate attribute of Jesus that insecure people feel more secure with. Holiness frightens us at times, doesn't it? Holiness thunders with judgment, doesn't it? And there is an appropriate sense to that. If I just look at Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah the prophet, the mouthpiece of the Lord, was confronted by the holiness of God and John's gospel will actually say that Isaiah was beholding the glory of Jesus here. The text says in Isaiah 6, in the year that King, of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple and seraphim, literally It's a word that means the burning ones, angels that look like they're constantly on fire. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face so as not to behold the Lord. With two, he covered his feet because he's unclean in comparison to God's holiness. And with two, he flew as if to serve the holy purposes of God. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah automatically felt secure, safe, at rest. No, he didn't, did he? Not at all. When he saw and heard all of that He said, woe is me, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Listen, if angels have to cover their holy feet in front of the holy God, what are are we? I'm ruined. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Where's security in the holiness of God there? That just makes me fearful and make me think I have no security in front of God. But do you remember what happened next with Isaiah? In verse six, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. That is, he took this from the very presence of God's holiness. And verse seven says, he touched it to my mouth and said, behold, This has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. That's when he feels secure. Our sin in front of God's exposing holiness deserves our eternal ruin, doesn't it? But our sin that's been burned away through God's cleansing holiness leaves us in a place of absolute security. If the holy God cleanses you, what do you have to fear in front of his holiness? In fact, his holiness. If you are marked by his holiness, I don't know how you couldn't have any more security. You should be the most secure because the holy one has cleansed you. To say that Jesus is the Holy One is to say that he is God. Now, you need to think about that. That could, and perhaps it should frighten you if you're not cleansed by his work. But if you are, to hear that God is for you should lead you to Paul's conclusion in Romans 8, then who could ever be against you? right? It's God. To be in Jesus is to have God. Jesus is God here. It he doesn't make you God. We're created to bear the image of God. We don't have his nature, but we do bear his image, and that is an image of holiness. In fact, God treats us as holy when he redeems us because he's Taken the righteousness of Jesus and treating you according to that righteousness. And if he does that, I, that should be securing to you. What insecurities do you have left when the Holy God hasn't, has not condemned you, but has welcomed you? If God is on your side, no insecurities should remain. He's the Holy One, He's the source of our security. But secondly, Jesus is authentic. He's authentic. It's in the statement, He who is true. In other words, inauthenticity is not secure. It's not secure. If you walk into the store and you have a $100 bill and you know it's fake, you don't have any security that you can make the purchase. That's obvious. But you do, you never even think about it. You just hand them the bill, you make the purchase, you move on. It's secure. You don't ever worry about it. You don't sit there and say, I wonder if this is the real thing. When you know it's the real thing, when you know it's true, when you know it's real and genuine, you're secure. Now this is not just a statement that Jesus is truth. It's a statement about his being genuine. Again, in light of the Significant Jewish opposition in Philadelphia who reject Jesus as a false Messiah, he counters that by reminding the church in Philadelphia, I am true, I am genuine, the authentic, genuine Messiah. He is the true witness, the genuine testimony of God. In Revelation 6.10, he is holy and true. In Revelation 15.3 and 16.7, there's the statement made true are your ways. Revelation 19:2 His judgments are true. In Revelation 19:9 9 and 21:5 His words are true. In Revelation 19:11 and 22:6 He is the one who sits on the white horse and is called faithful and true. In John 15 he is the true light that has come into the world. He's the true vine. In 1 John 5:20 it says, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Who's genuinely God? It's Jesus. Who's true? It's Christ. Everything about Jesus is true. In fact, we can't know what is true apart from him. You see what? Non-Christians do things. They can know what's true in the world. They can see two plus two equals four. Right, they can see that, but they don't know it truly. What do you mean by that? You can know that there are some factual things about the world and how it functions, but you don't know why they are that way. What is their purpose? What is the end purpose behind all of those things if you don't see it through Christ? This is why the world is so unstable. In fact, if you want to know whether or not you are living in the truth, if you're really living in Christ, you need to look at how agitated you are or how stable you are. Right, when you stand in truth, when you believe in him as authentic and you're seeing the world through his eyes and through his purposes, and you're seeing he's governing all things the one who is holy, who is God, who is authentic and true, is over all things. You don't worry. You're not anxious because you begin to understand He has a purpose, He has a design. I'm in Him. I'm not unstable. Yes, I see the encroachment of the world, I see the evil in society, but He is true and I'm in Him. Therefore, I'm in the authentic one. I'm living in what is true. I'm not unstable. I trust his words, they're true. They'll be effective as he makes them effective. I don't have to make them effective for him. I get it that weathermen can predict the weather and they can tell you where the tornado's gonna hit. Isn't that fascinating? They tell you it's gonna come down here about right now on this block, and so you can take cover. But what happens in the aftermath? Why did the tornado come? Why did it hit here? What is the reason behind all of that? If you don't have Christ who is true, you won't understand those things, right? I'm not talking about just what's factual, what's genuine, what's true. I've I've just witnessed so many Christians, especially in the current culture, they're so unstable. The latest thing they read, they fall apart. There's no stability of life. Back and forth, up and down. Emotions just running wild everywhere. The latest thing that comes out... Friends, who do we worship? Who are we in? He's true. He's God. Be stable. Just be faithful to what he said to do. Authenticity... Inspires security. He's true. Also, we find here in this opening verse, he's holy, that is, he is God. He's true, meaning he's authentic. But third, Jesus is the Messiah. This is significant. You need to think on this for a moment. He is the Messiah. Notice the next phrase who has the key of David. He has the key of David. Why mention David's name here? What's so significant about this? Why why should this be securing to you? Well, to have the key of David means you're connected to David, the greatest king in Israel's history. But particularly, 2 Samuel chapter seven is that promise that was given to King David. Just listen to it. Jot it down, but listen to it. David was promised in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish, listen to this, I will establish his kingdom. So there's a descendant coming from David. I'll establish his kingdom. Talking about his son who will come from him he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. There's this interesting phrase that comes next. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. What is that a reference to? Well, obviously the sons of David that came from his line who would sit on his throne were sinful men. But even the ultimate son that would come from his throne, even though he didn't commit sin, he was treated as if he were a sinner. God poured his wrath out on him. But God made this promise, my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's going to be a king that comes from your line who sits on the throne, ultimately who is the truest son of david the ultimate son of david who sits on that throne meaning he rules over a kingdom he possesses the kingdom he is the king who has all governing authority over that kingdom now the prophets indicated that that ultimate son of david would come and rule over the entire earth in that kingdom ezekiel 34:23 I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. Now, Ezekiel was written hundreds of years after David was dead. Who is this my servant? David. It's David's son, the one promised in 2 Samuel 7. He will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four. my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. The whole earth is going to have one shepherd. They'll walk in my ordinance and keep my statutes and observe them. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Then we look at the record of Jesus' life as it's described in the Gospels, and he was regularly referred to as the son of David, wasn't he? Regularly. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Luke 1.32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's an explicit reference to Jesus being the one who would be the ultimate son who sits on the throne of David, promised in 2 Samuel 7. There were numerous times when Jesus was referred to by sinners who were recognizing who he is. There's the son of David, Matthew 9, 27. Two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. What were they saying when they said that? To you, when you've read the Bible many times, that would just maybe pass over the son of David. When two blind men are saying that's the son of David, they're saying in front of everyone, that's the long-awaited-for Messiah who brings in the eternal kingdom. Matthew 12, 23, the crowds were amazed and they were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? I mean, he fits the description. This is the Messiah. So, to have the key of David means what? You are the one who gives entrance into the Messianic kingdom. Now this reference the key of David is found almost explicitly in the book of Isaiah. You can turn there if you like, Isaiah chapter 22. It's an interesting passage. Isaiah 22 mentions this very phrase Isaiah 22 is the oracle concerning the valley of vision. There is a valley in which there is a vision of what is to come. And in referring to those who would lead Israel in unrighteousness, it says in verse 19, I will depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station and then it will come about in that day And this is interesting. When you read in the Old Testament phrases like in that day, it's typically the prophet is referring to something in the future, coming. In that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. There's an actual king of Judah who was mentioned there, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. But notice what is said of Eliakim. I will clothe him with your tunic, "'and tie your sash securely about him. "'I will entrust him with your authority, "'and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem "'and to the house of Judah. "'Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. "'When he opens, no one will shut, "'and when he shuts, no one will open.'" And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. What is... What is that speaking of? Well, at the very least, Eliakim is a king of Judah, an actual king of Judah, but is prefigured here as the king sitting on David's throne, prefigured here as someone who holds the key to the house of David that unlocks the promise mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's an actual king, but he is spoken of in ultimate terms, which is not uncommon to read in the prophets. You'll read of actual historical moments that are pointing you toward the ultimate king. This king of Judah, as is true literally of all the other kings of Judah, would hold the key of the house of David. That is the house of David that brings about the Messiah. And if you want it into the kingdom, you have to come through the one who has the key of David's house. You want into the kingdom? You have to come through Messiah. That king and that king alone lets you into the kingdom. That's why the book of Revelation several times beyond just what we see here will refer to Jesus as David's son, refer to him as the expected Messiah, Revelation 5.5. 5. One of the elders would tell John, "Stop weeping. It's like he's speaking to one of us. Settle down. Stop weeping. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome." Revelation 22:16, "I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David." He's the Messiah. This is a clear reference to Jesus being the long awaited for Messiah who will open up the kingdom. What's interesting is there is a real sense in which we come into the kingdom when we come into Christ now. But the ultimate understanding of the kingdom is when the king actually comes from heaven and sits on the throne on the earth and rules over all the earth. Matthew 25 refers to that. He comes in his glorious kingdom and he sits on the throne. And we haven't experienced that yet. We're still awaiting that. The whole book of Revelation is saying this Jesus is the Messiah and here's how his ultimate kingdom comes. Don't we still pray that? Didn't Jesus tell us to pray that way? Aren't we praying for his kingdom to come? And that's not just in salvation here and now, but in the ultimate fullness of come, Lord Jesus, and take up your throne on the earth. He's the Messiah. Every promise that God has ever made will be fulfilled in him and him alone. Every single promise. There's not one promise he's made that he will not fulfill through the Messiah. That is quite a statement because he has the key of the throne of David, the kingdom of David. He's God. He's authentic. He's Messiah. One other element that should give you some security. He's the source of all security. He's the gatekeeper. Jesus is the gatekeeper. What do you mean by that? Well, because he has the key, what does he do? He opens And no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. That is one who opens the gate to the kingdom and allows people in. He shuts the gate to the kingdom and he doesn't allow someone into the kingdom. He alone has that right and that privilege. Now I want you to consider this. If Jesus has opened the gate of the kingdom to you and you have been welcomed into the kingdom by the Messiah who alone is true and is God... Who can keep you out of the kingdom? According to this, no one. He has the key. If you have come in through Christ, you are in, and no one can shut. And that key keeps people out because you can't get in another way. That's actually the picture that is described in Matthew chapter 16. I want you to follow me in this for just a moment because it has some significance about how we're supposed to see the church in the here and now. You remember when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ? Matthew 16. In verse 15, it says, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Previously, he asked, who are people saying the Son of Man is? They gave him a few answers that were popular among the crowds. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. That's what he said. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now watch what he says here. I also say to you that you are Peter. Peter. James changed his name from Simon, the swaying reed, to Peter, the rock. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, my gathering, my people, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades don't have the power because who has the key that opens the kingdom and pushes through and expands so that hell can't stop it? The one who has the key. What does verse 19 say? I will give you what? The keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That sounds a lot like what we're reading in Revelation. The one who has the key of David, he opens and no one can shut, and he shuts and no one can open. But here Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys. And what you open is open and what you shut is shut. How can he do that? Because Peter is the right man making the right confession of who Jesus is as the Messiah, right? He's an individual whom Jesus has recognized as a person making the right confession and to you, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. So if you recognize someone as making the right confession, you have the ability to recognize them and welcome them in and it's as if heaven is on your side in that recognition. And if you close the kingdom, Peter, to others because you don't hear them making the right confession, the kingdom is closed to them. You have the keys. Now that person and that confession is not limited to Peter. Peter was the first one who made that confession the first right person to make that right confession but in Matthew 18 this very idea expands again look over at Matthew 18 for a moment and the section on church discipline that we always go to and run to when we think about all right here's how we handle sin in the church and it is but what you have to understand about church discipline is you're recognizing as a body who is is accurately professing faith in Jesus the Messiah and who is not. So if you have someone who is sinning and you go to them and you talk to them about their sin and they say, I don't want to turn from that, then you bring some others along. That's what verses 15 and 16 say. You bring some along to confront them. And if they won't listen to the few witnesses, notice Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to what? The church. Now, the church was just mentioned previously. It's the church that Jesus is building, and he's building it on the people who make the right confession. Started with Peter. But now, if he refuses to listen to these witnesses, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, you as, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? You treat him like a non Christian. Why? Because he's not showing the deeds of a Christian, of a believer, one who follows God. So you have to then recognize them as not a part of the church. What is the next thing that is said in verse 18? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What does that mean? That's the same language of having the keys, isn't it? Now the church is recognizing who is in the kingdom and who is out of the kingdom. Not by their own criteria, but by are you the person making the right confession as to Jesus being the Messiah and you live in connection to him? Who has the keys of the kingdom? The church does. You say, well, I thought only Jesus does. Who represents Jesus on the earth? And what you bind, it's as if the one holding the keys to the eternal kingdom has already recognized it. If you loose, which means you welcome them back in, it's as if the king who holds the key has welcomed them back in. I just wanna pause on that for a moment I want you to see why membership in the church is so important. What membership is all about. Membership in the church is not, well, I like this one better than that one. Membership in the church is, do we recognize that this person has a true confession of the true Messiah and they live in accord with that true confession? And if they do, they're in the kingdom. And if they cease to to live according to that true confession and deny it, we're to remove them because we are an outpost in this time and place. We are an outpost of the kingdom. And we are recognizing Christ alone and his gospel has the key to unlock that. Meaning if you are in the church, it is a recognition of your Christianity and there should be great security in that. You're in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. Where does security flee? Oh, I messed up. No. When you deny Jesus, when you deny him, the church is to recognize then you're outside the kingdom. So the one who has the key of David, who opens and shuts, that gets played out by the local church as we bring in and remove those who are members of the church. Why do we spend so much time on a members meeting talking about a testimony and evidence of faith of someone coming into the church because it's the church who is to recognize, they have the keys to recognize who's coming in. And when we ask you to affirm removing someone, we explain that. We ask you to go after them and talk to them because the church possesses the keys that recognize heaven's, key to the kingdom church memberships more important than maybe you thought the church actually has a voice of authority as it's connected to Christ who holds the key and opens and shuts I mean that gives some nuance to when Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by me doesn't it it's a pretty loaded statement You can't can't get into the kingdom another way. It has to be through the Messiah, who alone is God. He is authentic. He's the one that fulfills all the promises of God. He's the gatekeeper. And he opens and closes the kingdom through the church, his people, Listen, if you just stopped and you started dwelling on that and you found yourself saying, am I in Christ? Am I in the Lord? Am I connected to him? Do I live for him? Then what other source of authority are you going to look for? What other source of security are you going to look for to find hope in and security and stability in? He's the source of authority. Now, just for a, a moment, we won't get very far. We're not getting through all the passage today. Rest now, rest. Spaghetti's coming, true. Let's look at a second quality that should give us stability in light of the security we have in Jesus. Jesus, and we're just gonna touch on this one today. Jesus is the provider of our security. So he's the source. It's one thing to be the source of security, but does he actually give it to you? Does he give it to you? And I emphasize Jesus as the provider here because of the language in this passage. Verse 8, look at it carefully. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put. The word put is literally the word in Greek to give. I have given. I have given before you an open door. Verse 9. Behold, I will cause. The word cause is the same word for put in verse 8. It's the word to give. I have given. I have given of the synagogue of Satan. You say, what, he's given? Yeah, we'll get to that next Lord's Day, hopefully. Verse 10, what does Jesus provide Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. He's the giver. He's the provider. And he keeps. That's a word of security, isn't it? He guards. He protects. He secures. He is the provision of all security. So he's the source and he's the one who dispenses. He gives that security. So what does he give us? What does he provide for us? Well, we'll look at four different provisions and just one of them this morning. First, Jesus provides a secure entrance. He provides secure entrance. And I I love the way that he describes this because it's so helpful for us to think through. He says, I know your deeds. Do you see that in verse eight? I know your deeds. And we've seen this before in these letters. The one who has the sevenfold spirit of God, chapter one, verse four, chapter three, verse one, the one who sees everything, all things, and knows all things, he knows everything your deeds. He knew the deeds of the Ephesian church, Revelation 2:2. 2, 2. He knew that they needed to return to him in those deeds, Revelation 2:5. Do the deeds you did at first. He knew that they had some good deeds. They hated the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, Revelation 2:6. Jesus knew the deeds of the church in Thyatira that those deeds were good and they needed to go back to those first deeds, Revelation 2:19. Jesus exposed the deeds of Jezebel in Revelation 2.22, and he's going to give judgment according to deeds, Revelation 2.23. Has, Jesus has his own deeds that we're to keep, Revelation 2.26, he who keeps my deeds to the end. He's going to tell the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, you're neither hot nor cold, he knows our deeds. And we should again note that when it says he knows the deeds, he's not ignoring the heart. He's not just looking at the outside and says, I know who you are on the outside. Because sometimes his knowing the deeds is commended and sometimes it's condemned. When he knows the deeds, he's not ignoring the heart. He's saying, I'm seeing the reflection of the heart judgment and reward are going to be given according to deeds because those deeds are reflective of where the heart is in other words he knows the lifestyle and I I just want to note here also it's not like he knows that you made one deed that was wrong he's not saying that oh I know you slipped up here you're done I know your lifestyle I know the direction of your life I know the trajectory of your life Are you struggling with sin? Are you fighting sin? Are you challenging sin? Are you growing more and more in righteousness, but you still find yourself sinning? That's he's he's not saying, ooh, you slipped, you're done. No. I know the direction of your life. I know what you're doing. I understand what's behind that. He's not going to condemn you because of a single isolated sin. He knows your life. And that life reveals whether you are in Christ or not in Christ. He knows it. And don't get tripped up on this idea that Jesus is going to reward some for their deeds and condemn others for their deeds. Finding entrance into salvation is not by accumulating good things. We know that. It's by having faith in Christ and having faith in Christ produces a lifestyle that reflects faith in Christ. The deeds are reflective of trust and commitment and contentment in Christ. That's what faith is. So you need to seriously look at the direction of your life. What kind of life is your heart affection creating? What is your internal commitment to Christ producing? Now back in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. And then he says, behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. He actually interrupts himself because he hadn't got to what those deeds are yet, and he interrupts himself, and then he gets back to what the deeds are, and the deeds are, you have a little power, you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name. I think the correct way to translate the word in the NAS that's translated as because is that. It's content, not cause. I know your deeds, that, you have a little power, and you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name, and I... I believe that's true because of the way he says that little phrase that he interrupts himself with, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. I've put before you means I have opened up a door sometime in the past which no one can shut. I've already done it. I've put that before you and it's a door that I have opened and I've already opened it. You didn't open it with your deeds, I opened it and it's been opened. He's the only one that has the key. You don't have the key to open the door. He has the key, and he's opened it already. So what are the deeds? You have a little power. Literally, it means your ability is small. You have a little power. Power is the word dunamis. It simply means ability. We get the English word dynamite, but don't think explosive here. You just have a little ability just a little bit of ability. Maybe you're small and you're insignificant and you're not the social standard in the society in Philadelphia. You just got a little bit of ability. But you have also kept my word. You've guarded it. You've protected it. Jesus said in John 8, 51, if you keep my word, you'll never see death. 1 John 2, 5, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we're in him because we keep the word, we obey it. Interesting to note, you've kept my word is in what we call the aorist tense. It's not you are always keeping my word, you've kept it as if keeping the word is the definition of your life. You look at that person, you think scripture. You look at their, their life and the decisions they make, you're a keeper of the word. It just defines you. What a testimony. So you're little, but you keep the word. And third, you've not denied my name. Those are the works. You've not denied my name. In other words, it seems as if there's been an opportunity to deny the name of Christ, to not keep the word, to keep it quiet, to keep it hidden, to not give yourself over to identifying with Jesus. And yet you've held fast to the word. You haven't rejected me. Their own life should give them some assurance. Look what look what you're doing. I know your deeds. No one thinks you have any ability, but you've kept my word. You haven't denied me. And so, behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. What is that open door? Entrance into the messianic kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom. I've opened the door. It's always been opened. Not opportunity. This is not saying you could come in. You are in. I opened the door. You're in. No one can shut that. No one can keep you out of the kingdom that I have opened to you. You are in the kingdom. Nobody thinks they would be significant, but you've kept the word. You haven't denied Him, so you're in. He holds the keys. He's opened it. They've trusted him. They're in the kingdom. He's the only way to get in. When we celebrate the Lord's table in a moment, I want you to think carefully about that. You're taking the bread that represents who he is and what he accomplished on the cross, right? And you're saying, I've not denied your name. I'm not turning away from you. When you take that, you're saying, I'm identifying myself with you. I want to keep your word, which means you are securely in the kingdom because he's opened the door to you. Everyone who takes the bread and drinks the cup is saying, the door has been opened and I am in the kingdom. Not because I gained it through my goodness, but I have faith in him and it's created a new life that reflects his lordship. So when we take of this, you are confessing. We are the church. We're in the kingdom. He has opened it to us. If you don't take it, what are you saying? I'm not a follower of Christ. I'm not a follower of Christ because I'm not connected to the church and the church is who recognizes that. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do pray that as you move among us in your spirit that you would bring about conviction where that's necessary and we pray that you would help help us to see if we're in the kingdom or not in the kingdom if we're a follower of Jesus or not if we love his name and won't deny it or if we really have no interest in his name would you father Bring conviction to those who are outside of Christ. Cause them to turn from their sin, to recognize it, flee from it, and see you as the only way into the kingdom and trust you. And grant them a security. A security because no one can shut them out. Lord, would you do this work, and as we confess your name through the Lord's table, would you make this a time of warm fellowship with Christ, with your people that remind us of who we are together. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.